0: welcome to the Grassroots Coachcast episode 24. I'm one of your hosts, Dave. And I'm Ben. Good evening. Today, we're going to be talking to CEO and Technical Director of Footy Factory, Sean Afkamenia. The main concept of this podcast is to discuss coaching youth football or soccer at the grassroots level. Ben and I both coach under-11s teams. Ben coaches the boys and I coach the girls. Each week we'll look to choose a different topic to cover and discuss our experiences, both good and bad, and any advice we may have. Ultimately, we're looking to get this content out there and hopefully help other people who are coaching at the grassroots level. And if you do enjoy the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts or your podcast catcher of choice and give us a five-star review there. This really helps us to grow the show and gets out to other listeners. Today, we're delighted to have on the show with us a very special guest today, Sean Afkamenia. Welcome to the show, Sean. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Sean is the CEO and Technical Director of Footy Factory in Dallas, Texas in the U.S., Sean, I'd like to get to know a little bit more about the footy factory shortly, but I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background in soccer.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was born and raised in, here in Dallas, Texas, where I'm at currently. Um, grew up playing in, in the youth uh, system here in the area, which uh, if you're unfamiliar with the landscape in in America, Dallas, Texas, North Texas in general is probably the, the hotbed for, um, you know, talent in in the country. So it's really high level, good competition all around. Um, and so I was playing in, you know, some of the top leagues around. And uh, then from there, continued to, to, to play through high school. And in high school, uh, I was able to, um, you know, get... Uh, All-state honors and Offensive Player of the Year honors for my district and things like that. So, you know, I felt that I was prepared to play at the next level at that point. And from there, I went and uh, I was able to, I signed a letter of intent to play at West Texas A&M out in the panhandle of Texas. And a really good Division II program, a lot of international players that come through. Um and when I got there I just realized that they were on just a completely different level than any of the other American players. And not necessarily like in terms of um their their ability, but just in terms of their knowledge of the game, their the technical training that they'd received. Um and I'd say even, you know, some of the some of the physical training that they'd received as well, they they had their tools already sharpened and they had just received a much more extensive, um, you know, teaching of the game than, than anything that we'd ever seen here. So I spent a lot of my time there just observing those players and seeing how they trained and how they worked and, you know, the attitudes that they brought to, to the the program. And it really made me realize what we were, what I was missing specifically growing up and then what, you know, we are missing as a whole, In youth soccer in America. And, you know, that really inspired me to to do something about it and 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 make a difference. So, you know, when I graduated college, first of all, I studied business management in in college. So one of my uh, one of my capstone courses, I had to develop a fictitious business plan. And I already had this idea for Footy Factory, which originally started as a uh, an idea for just a soccer-specific training facility. Because when I was in college, that's something that I was always looking for. Coming back home, you know, for the summer break and winter break, a place that I could play and also train. Um, and there was nothing like that. And so, you know, that was my idea. That's what I wanted to do. And so, after after I graduated from school, I came back home uh started managing a local facility around the area to just kind of learn the business and the industry and how it worked and kind of set myself down that path and you know after a couple of months i just realized that that wasn't exactly what i wanted to be spending my time doing at this time and um so what i did was i got in touch with one of my old high school coaches he was coaching at a different school at the time and um, I went and joined him and, and started uh, helping him with the varsity team there. And uh, I, that's wherever when I also picked up my own team. So I was the head coach of the junior high team. And, um, and then we started Footy Factory together at that time. And we just decided, let's, let's go ahead and build Footy Factory from the ground up. We'll build the structure, the academy, uh, so that whenever we are able to eventually get our own facility, the substance is already there. And so I started it with my former coach. He helped me get into a facility. We started developing some small group classes, uh, doing some one-on-one training a bit. From there, then, um, you know, after about six months, we moved into a better facility. And then we were able to uh, continue developing those classes. We added some camps. We started forming some small-sided teams uh, year two and year three. And then by year four, we had finally officially organized our first full outdoor academy teams, which was huge for us. It was a big step forward. So last year uh, we had two academy teams this year we have six and I have a coaching staff of seven around me, really good guys that, you know, all believe in what we're trying to do and, and are putting in that extra effort to help us continue to grow and, and uh, you know, eventually become what we are trying to become. And so that's where we're at now. And um, we're basically, you know, in between uh, formal completing the structure of the academy and then taking those first initial steps towards building our own facility. And so that's kind of where we're at right now.
0: Brilliant. That's cool. And and I have to ask you about the name as well, because just that word footy, I, I associate that's more a word we'd use in England yeah <laughs> so, so a lot where of my, does that come from
1: yeah a lot of my teammates in college were english and um actually one of my one of my roommates were, was uh, irish and so i, I mean i i have always you know understood the culture and obviously like you know if you're a true soccer fan if you really enjoy uh learning and studying the game like learning from different cultures <laughs> is so important so you know that was just a word that, that we were familiar with, and it kind of just rang well with factory and so i don 't know it just kind of came into my head one day, and it stuck
0: <laughs> no it's it's great, but like I say, it's just uh, chatting with Ben you know f- a few weeks ago it's like wow oh, that's interesting <laughs> i wouldn't have thought in the u s that that would uh, resonate with people footy, but uh yeah, no, I think it's awesome you know,
1: you know what we 've kind of come to realize is. Uh, it's people don't understand what it means. So when they hear it, they're like, "Oh, that's cute." You know, that sounds cute. <laughs> and, and like, ah, that's not exactly what I was going for. With that. It
2: makes you stand uh, out a bit, though. It's a bit different, isn't
1: it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. But you know, so that's why I'm trying to. Uh, you know, I think we were, we were speaking earlier. We haven't mentioned it yet since we started recording, but footy factory now is our camps and our training programs that, that run year round. So we want to differentiate that aspect of our, of our, uh, organizational structure from our actual academy teams that we have, which is called footy factory Academy or just FF Academy for short. And, um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where we're trying to take that. And then obviously footy factory is really meant to be the name of the, the facility that we will eventually have. So right. that's kind of how that came about.
0: Awesome. So the game in the U S has come far in quite a short amount of time. So I, I think you're possibly a little bit younger than Ben and myself. Now I, I, my first exposure to the, to the U S game was back in 1993 when the whole narrative around England was, you know, all of the kids and everything played, you know, we call it American football, but you know, football, baseball, basketball. So there's really not that many people playing soccer at that time. And then they, the national team promptly, uh, dispatched England to nil quite easily <laughs> to make all the journalists look a little bit silly, but, since then, there seems to have been a... I don't know if I want to call it an explosion, but there's certainly been an increased popularity from the youth level. And then, you know, the national team has been quite successful, you know, in, in more recent years. Recent being, you know, last 20 years or so. Now, obviously, for this last World Cup, though, uh, the national team didn't qualify. So what what's been the general kind of conversation and dialogue you know again if if I look at England when the national team don't do well here it's usually you know we come up with a narrative there's all these excuses and, and usually it's to do with grassroots football not teaching kids the, the right fundamentals what's that conversation been like in the U.S.?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, like the the youth playing population is very high. Like, there's a lot of kids playing in this country, and especially because it's so big, like we have a, a huge pool to select from. But they're getting lost whenever they get, you know, into those high school ages. Whenever they start to turn into a team, um, they we we just. Either, you know, for one, they're not developing the way that they should be or they just lose interest. And so that's whenever we start to, you know, lose some of the talent that we have. Um, And so, you know, with that said, I think that this has been something that people have seen coming for quite a while. I mean, I wasn't shocked when we didn't make the World Cup. Um, and I know that a lot of other people weren't, but obviously the media are going to blow it out of proportion and and make it seem like a huge crisis when, you know, it's really, it's really not a crisis, but hopefully now people are more open to change and understand that there is going to be something that needs to happen in order for us to actually start to close that gap on the international level.
0: Um, so sorry to cut across you there it's really interesting you say that because obviously you're you're a lot close to the to the to the u.s game and you say you're not surprised so so what what is it why why weren't you surprised yeah
1: i mean just too many average players honestly you know it's more political like i know from experience just even at at the level that i was playing at which is a semi-professional level like i was never going to make it you know into the national team or anything like that but I feel like if I had had the proper training when I was younger, I definitely could have. Um, but you know, with that, even here in Dallas, like when you when when you see uh, new you know local professional sides pop up, it's always the same guys that you see you know that are getting signed to those teams. And so it's more about who you know and less about your actual ability. And so it's just a closed system, you know. In, in the same way that our professional leagues are set up, like you can't get promoted into the MLS. Like mm-hmm. you have to, you have to pay for the franchise fee, and it, it you know, be, and so that's just setting up the, the same thing for players being able to rise up. Uh, on their own, you, you have to have the connection to to get into a top level team, and if you don't, then you just won't make it. Uh, but there's so many good players, even just here in Dallas, that you know could be playing at the highest level right now that aren't for that reason.
2: What's your intake like, Sean? Of interested players, have you got a certain age bracket where you've got more players coming in, sort of eight, nine, ten, or is it a broad range? And how many how many kind of players have you got? Or uh, involved with you at the moment?
1: Yeah. So our the majority of our players are within the eight to twelve age range. Right, so okay. We so you know last year we had two academy teams. This year we, we have six, and we have okay. it basically. We our our six teams are from U ten up through U thirteen at the moment. Right. Okay. And um, so so those are, and they're all boys. Um, not because we don't like girls. We just haven't been able to form any girls teams yet. And I'm not sure why that is. I think, you know, maybe because girls are more interested in other things early on and they don't start to specialize or focus (laughs) on soccer until they get a little bit older. Um, But definitely, you know, for what we're trying to do in the identity we're trying to create with our club, it doesn't make sense for us to go out and try to form older teams right now. We want to start from the bottom and, and, and develop them through their career. Sure, you know sure. so so we will eventually have uh under 13 through under 18 teams but most likely not until our under 13 team gets to that age. Yeah yeah yeah. And so and so you know just to uh expand on that like I think that uh a lot of players are you know very interested in the game at at an early age. Whenever they are seven, eight, nine years old, they're starting to get, you know, maybe they're playing recreationally and they, they are, you know, looking for a new opportunity or a better opportunity to continue to develop. And so they get thrown into, you know, a club team because they have no idea what's going on. The parents have no clue where to go. And so they just jump at the first, you know, uh, coach that shows interest in their kid or the first club that. They they hear of and and a lot of times they go into a situation that's not right for them and it just it it, it kills their motivation to play and, and it, it ruins the interest and so kind of you know our uh, approach is we want to we're we're targeting those recreational players at six seven eight years old and then we want to be that bridge to the competitive level. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, all of our teams, every player on every single team that we have started at a recreational level. Some of our teams are, are a little bit more developed. Um, the teams that I coach in particular, just because I've been working with them for a year and a half now. And, um, and, and, and some of them are still trying to figure things out, but you know, the teams that I've been working with, the players that I have are now competing at a top level. And so, you know, we, we know our, our, our system works. So it's just about just copy and pasting that with every other kid that comes through.
0: Okay. That's really interesting. And you mentioned there, Sean about it, you know, generally at every level, it, it being a fairly closed system. So how do you go about recruitment then for, for those teams? So you've gone from four teams to six teams. Do, do you run trials
1: Yeah, so we moved into a new facility recently that had more space for us to be able to actually expand and add more teams. Um, So we hosted some open tryouts, which we probably, through those open tryouts, directly added one new team. Um, And the rest, we kind of just, you know, added players to rosters here and there. Um, but you know, a lot of our recruiting comes through our training programs. So you know, when we bring play- players in, it's not trying to sell them on a on a on a one year contract for one of our academy teams. But I mean, for training, so we can work with them, so we can develop them individually. Once we get them to level that we see fit, then you know we promote them into our academy teams. So that's the approach that we're taking to it. We don't spend a lot of time really any time recruiting other teams players because that kind of is a waste of time honestly um you know a lot of the other it's very cutthroat you know a lot of other cl- club coaches will spend just as much time if not more trying to recruit other teams players than actually working with their own And, um, we're just not interested in that. You know, there's plenty to go around. We don't need to be stealing everybody else's. And, and honestly, if they're already with another club, then most of the time they're already brainwashed into thinking that that's, you know, the, the, the answer, like them playing for the big club is the the path to play at the highest level when, you know, for someone who actually knows it's, it's not. And, um, so we want to provide players, of all backgrounds, uh, a real chance to play at the highest level. And so that's why we have our professional side set up as well. Um, You know, right now it's just a semi-pro team, but eventually, you know, we want to continue developing that and hopefully continue to uh, rise up with that group as well.
0: That's great. And so have you had much of that? Have you had people poaching your players?
1: Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, I can think of a couple of specific examples. Last year, on my under-12 boys team, I had three players that uh, I had been working with for about a year at that point, and and they all came from a recreational level, like, had never played really on an organized team up to that point at all, and, um, you know, and also, they were looking to try out with other teams at that time, and no one really wanted them, and then you know, all of a sudden, a year later, all the top teams are, are coming after him. And so I made the mistake of scheduling a scrimmage with one of those top teams. And sure enough, like immediately after the scrimmage, he's starting to chat with me about players that I have. And before I know it, he's already connected with the dad of one of the players that I had. And, <laughs> and you know, it was it, like I can only do so much. You know, if, if a player wants to leave, regardless of the contract that he signed, and his parent wants to take him to another practice, there's nothing I can do about it. And what was really unfortunate for us is, is that team actually practiced at the same facility as us. So we literally watched the kid, instead of coming up to our training session, just continue to walk past and go to another oh, session. It's like, all right, nice.
0: man, you know, well, good luck. That's not good. Not good. I'm sure, Ben, you, you've had that, haven't you? People trying to. Poach, and I know yeah. I have, and and again that. So, in the in the girls' league uh, for us, I mean, it, it's it's all. Actually it's probably just all a bit British, isn't it? So you you know it, it has to all be above board. If if you've got a registered player, you have to go through that club and and basically ask to speak to the player or pass on their interest.
1: Right.
2: I don't think that happens with us. I think if you want to play, they just they just leave. Yeah. And it's not on. happened to me, but it's happened right. to one of the, uh, the... We've got four teams at our age level at my club and the, the best team have lost a couple of players to what is our local rivals who are the best team in our region and they just kind of come and handpick. And because of the name, because it's quite a big name for where we are, as soon as that right. club's interested, they're, they're pretty much gone. So that's happened to one of our teams at the club. You lost two players to this other team this summer and it's really and it's considerably weakened his team quite a bit so it's you know it's, there's nothing, like you said there's nothing you can do about it if somebody wants to go they're going to go
1: and honestly it's best to let them go because all they're yeah, gonna of course, do it, is, the of course it is
2: absolutely yeah you don't you don't want a player who doesn't want to be there it's pointless
1: exactly and I don't even think it was the players more just the parents and their ego getting in the way yeah I think they knew better so yeah you just got let to them, let them do their own thing and and, uh, and whatever happens, happens. But we know that whatever player that we get in, we're going we're gonna to develop to that same level. So if we lose one that's already at that level, then yep. you know, no sweat off our back. I
2: was just interested in terms of, uh, I don't know how it works in the States, but we've over here we've got something called the FA, which you've probably heard about, possibly. Um, mm-hmm. and they have a very specific kind of coaching qualification path i don't know what it's like in america have you do you have to take coaching they call them badges over here they're not really badges they're kind of certificates but right. they were historically That's known cool. as badges um so for example at my club i have to have a level one qualification okay which, I, which i've done and dave's done it as well around about the same time as me uh, earlier this year so if that goes up to sort of i can't remember level two three
0: a, I B, think it goes up likely. to five, and then you are into yeah. UEFA. Yeah, all well, so that sort of stuff. So, is it the FA
1: level three the same as a UEFA B? Something like
2: I am not one hundred percent sure. It's kind of something like that, but um, is that, is I, that I think it much? is,
0: Sean. I, I'll check it offline, but yeah. I, I think you are right.
2: If you had to follow a similar sort of path in terms of coaching qualifications and that sort of thing, over where you are.
1: Yeah, they, there's definitely a path. Um, you know, in my situation, I, I run my own business, so I don't necessarily have to go do anything. But if I want to continue developing as a coach, which I do, then I think that it's important that I do them. And so, I actually took. Uh, so it. So they they keep changing the structure on us, but the way it was set up whenever I was in in school still was. Um, if you had a certain, uh, uh, level of playing experience, you could skip straight to the USSF D license, Oh, okay. Uh, DCBA. And I think now there's like an A youth and an A professional or something like that. Um, but at that time, you know, I had the, the qualification I needed to, to go straight to the D. So I took it, um, and I went through the course, you know, I was probably one of like three or four, uh, students in the class that actually had a real knowledge of the game. And I wasn't just, uh, you know, a lot of the other guys were just high school coaches that, you know, really had no experience, but were forced to go get their license, uh, to keep their coaching job. And so, so, you know, I felt like I was at the top of that class and I went through all the tests and passed everything, got to the practical sessions where they actually, you know, evaluate you running a session. And there were like 25 categories that you had to get an A or a B in to to pass. And I think I got a C in two categories, transition to attack and transition to defend. Don't ask me how I got a C in those categories, but I did. And so instead of getting a national D, they gave me a state D. And so, um, you know, at that time, uh, I still had one more year of college left. So I wasn't, you know, it wasn't a huge priority for me to go back and retest right away. But if I had gone and retested right away, it would have been completely free. Um, but I just decided not to, and I left it. And then I started Footy Factory and you know, didn't really see the need to go and get my licenses at that time because I worked for myself. And so I left it. And then recently, they just changed the format up to where you have uh, your grassroots courses that you take. So... Um, there's an online course that you take and then two in-person classes that you take to get a grassroots license. And then from there you can go to your D, but you can't skip straight to the D anymore because I had already taken the D course six years ago. They allowed me to just directly re-register for the class, but I had to pay for the whole thing again and retake the whole thing rather than just retesting. And so I did that. I was a little bitter about it at first, but, uh, I stepped into the class. It was actually the first class they were hosting in North Texas uh, under the new format. So uh, I stepped in and, and saw actually a bunch of other coaches that I was familiar with. I you know knew from just being in the community because it's a really small community. Um, but uh, once I saw that, I kind of let my guard down a little bit and just realize like i'm gonna learn something from this class regardless of where i'm at right now so i need to just be open to it and and let whatever comes come to me and i did and it was a great experience and so i i completed that this summer so i have my d license my national d and then um in august i took my national through another organization so that was through ussf and then there's another organization that used to be called nscaa which is National Soccer Coaches Association. And I think they um, handle a lot of the the college rankings, the high school rankings and things like that. Um, they rebranded to United Soccer Coaches and they host a lot of different courses as well. But it's not as much of like a tiered system. It's more of just, we have these different courses, different subjects that you can take, whatever interests you, you can take it there are a few classes that require certain you know, prerequisites to be able to register for it, but most of them are just kind of on their own. And so I took the national director of coaching course in August. And that was, I mean, that was a huge uh, learning experience for me because it was basically just everything outside of actually coaching um, the business side of running a club and managing you know, operations. And so that was really important for me to take and I got a lot out of it, but yeah, there, to answer your question, there is a structure here, but I just don't think that it's set up in a way to, you know, maximize the amount of coaches that are taking advantage of it just because of the cost for one and the availability of the classes for two um, and really just the motivation of those coaches to continue to improve. So yeah, I think that I think that you know the opportunity is there but um we don't have enough people taking advantage of those opportunities and really trying to develop themselves as coaches as leaders. Okay, okay. that's really interesting.
0: So if someone gave you all the power to change uh the national structure so what what would you do? So you mentioned there about costs being prohibitive to people uh have more courses on any of the changes that that you would personally make?
1: Well, I mean, that's a loaded question because there's a lot of changes that I would want to make. Um, but you know, I think it, it it starts with the pay to play structure here. I, I I remember listening to one of your podcasts recently. I I heard you mention that, you know, they also owe fees, you know, with your clubs as well. Mm -hmm. But, I don't know to the extent of what those fees are is it an annual fee or is it like you know you pay for leagues here and there or how does that work exactly
2: at our, at our club it's an annual fee
1: okay and that, um, that covers how it it's
2: 275 pounds roughly so that's it? probably yeah yeah for the whole year so that oh, covers that's, you, get to, you get to train at the facility every week we've got a we I mean, we've got a little football ground proper ground uh, it's got a three G pitch, which is brilliant. It's great to train on. Um, so we get a slot, an hour and fifteen minutes each week, and that covers um, just membership of the club. Really. You get discount to first team matches if you want. To, if you want to sign up for that, um, because we were a new team, we got all our kit paid for by the club, and it just it's just being part of the league that we're in. So we're we're part of the Surrey FA. Uh, okay. And that encompasses in our league is about 110 teams. Yeah, so So that it's quite a big thing. It's quite you know it's quite expensive to to pay those fees, but it is for a whole year.
1: Yeah, well, that's like a monthly fee for us. Wow. (laughs) So so I mean we we have you know just to give you an idea, we charge 2500 a year for for our teams, and that's about standard. Um, 2500 dollars, of course, and that's about standard. Um, you know, but the value that we offer is, is, is what separates us from other clubs. Cause we offer the individual training as well for other clubs. You know, you're for that same amount, you're going to pay pretty much only for the team practices and any leagues tournaments that you do are extra, any kind of uh, technical training that you want to get. You got to go outside of the club to get it. And that's extra extra. So, you know, it just adds up and it's it, parents end up with this crazy bill at the end of the year. And, you know, obviously, like we're charging, but it's because we have to. And so, you know, we aren't able to stay in business in, unless we do. Mm-hmm. And I think that the one major thing that needs to change is the, the ability for youth clubs to receive solidarity payments for players that they develop that gets sold to professional clubs. I know that that's happening everywhere around the world, but for some reason here in America, uh, they've, they've blocked that. And they're actually, there's, there's a situation right now with uh, DeAndre Yedlin and his youth club that he played with back in Washington. And they're trying to get, you know, a percentage of his transfer fees from Seattle over to Tottenham a couple years ago. And oh, um, cool. yeah. And, and, and so, so there's two sides of that, right? So like you know that club obviously was charging you know players to play for them, but if they're charging, then they can't receive. It's not really ethical, I don't think, to also receive solidarity payments back from that. Um, so point. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're just double dipping. But at the same time, like the only way for us to move away from that pay-to-play structure is if. That becomes a standard, you know. Like we we have to be able to uh, accept, like, receive those payments because that's what we are working for, and it basically it will will directly change the mentality of coaches and clubs from collecting paychecks and winning games right now to actually developing a player for the long term, because that's where their payout is going to be at the end of their career or the end of their youth career rather. And so, you know, that, that's one thing that absolutely has to change if we're ever going to make a difference, they're trying to make it too similar to the other American sports. And, you know, it, it just, it's not going to work because soccer is an international game. It's not an American sport. So we can't just expect to, you know, copy the same model as sports that are only played in this country. Mm. So, you know, that's, that's one thing. And then I think what that is then going to lead to is having a more open system for our professional leagues. Um, You know, one, so the league that our, our men's team is going to be playing in is called the UPSL United Premier Soccer League. It's technically considered the fourth division of American soccer. Uh, However, what they are working to do is create a tiered system within that league And so they have two divisions right now. They're starting a third division and they'll basically allow teams to get promoted or relegated based on their performances. And it's growing at a rapid rate. Like there's already, it's only seven years old. I think there's over 200 teams registered around the country. Um, There's a really low barrier to entry. It doesn't cost that much to get in, which makes it more attractive for, uh, you know, local amateur sides that want to play at a higher level. That want to play in a more professional, you know, type of, of league with more just better organization overall, um, and I think that if that league continues to grow at that pace, like it can, it can challenge MLS and then the the leagues under it, which are also closed, the USL, um, and and create a completely new alternative to that that setup. Uh, obviously, the money is going to be in the MLS and the USL, but if if the UPSL can create enough volume, I think that that, that it's definitely a possibility, and that would be the biggest change. Like, I, I I simply don't understand why there's so many people in higher up positions in US soccer that don't agree with that. It just doesn't make sense to me.
0: That that genuinely is really interesting because I mean I. You mentioned your club there is two two seventy, Ben. I I think ours is cheaper. Ours is about one hundred and thirty for the for the year, one hundred and thirty pounds. So what's that? Two hundred dollars for the year, and the kids get their kits and everything. And uh, so there's such a low entry point. I mean, uh, you know, it's still some parents still view it as you know an expense, but it's absolutely nothing compared to what what parents would have to would have to fork out you know, if if they're putting their kids through in the U S and I guess the system here with all the various leagues, you know, it's, it's far from perfect. Um, but it does seem it, it's a definite pyramid. And we talked earlier about, you know, recruitment and, and clubs stealing players, stealing the best players, you know, typically if you've got some of the best players, you know, the higher up clubs will, will, be looking to pick them up and certainly if they've got a name you know we're obviously in a much more compressed space over here so you're never too far away from a, a professional club you know so if you've got some kids that really really are shining um then they could be invited along to go and uh, and train with them
1: yeah yeah and and that brings up another uh good point is Well, something that I just thought of is, is the fact that because it's a pay to play system, it's only, you know, the kids that are well off that are really able to get the opportunity to, to train and develop the way that they need to. That's a main reason why I didn't get the training I needed because I couldn't afford it as a kid. And so I had to, you know, I started in club soccer a lot later than most would and had to basically earn myself a scholarship to be able to play or else there was no way I would have been able to. And, and even then, you know, in my, in, in my club team, I didn't get the individual technical training. That's really necessary to, to maximize your potential. But, um, you know, going back to what I was saying before, it's like, you know, it's only, it's only the rich kids that can play. And a lot of the kids that just simply can't afford it, that have the ability, the talent to, you know, build off of just get completely swept under the rug. And and they never even have a chance. And so, you know, we've got to do a better job here of creating a level playing field. And so one thing that we're really trying to do is um, eventually have a, a free academy. So our camps, our training programs, those are always going to be paid. But once a player has developed to a point where, you know, we want to promote them into our academy teams, it'll be free for them. So we're leveling the playing field. We're giving everyone an equal opportunity to develop their, their ability And then it just comes down to them, whether they really want it, whether they have the attitude, the mentality to, to, you know, become the best that they can possibly be. And, and, and we give them that path to go to the top. And, um, and so, you know, with that, we, uh, the only way for us to really do that is I think generating revenue through sponsorships, donations and things like that. But, um, right now, like if, if we don't charge, I mean, we'll, we'll get shut down right away. You know, mm-hmm. we A lot of business. So, I mean, we have to, in order for me to live my, you know, for me to pay my coaches for us to pay the league fees and tournament fees for us to pay our rent, you know, at, at the facility that we train at, like that comes with a cost, you know? So we have to, yeah. we have to charge these kids to play, but, we don't want to and we want to figure out a way to, to to move away from that. That's really interesting.
0: I think that's great to be honest. And again, you you're part of a much bigger machine there. But um the fact that you're thinking about this, you know, this free offering and, and thinking in that way, I think it's great. I mean, certainly typically in England, you know, a lot of the players come from more what we'd call working class. I I guess you guys would call it more blue collar type environments. So, um, so it sounds like, you know, a lot of kids, I mean, I I could be really good at formula one driving uh, or IndyCar car racing, but I'll never know. (laughs) So, uh, sorry, sorry, Ben, I I think I cut you off there. Yeah. I was just going to ask how many coaches you've got at your
2: um, club, Sean.
1: Yeah, we've got seven now total. So myself, and then we've got two other academy coaches, and we've got two technical or three technical trainers that just focus on our training programs. Okay. Uh, then we also have a goalkeeper trainer as well. Um, but really, it, my staff has just kind of developed within the last year. Before that, I had a lot of turnover. You know, I wasn't really in a position to where I could pay out a lot. Um, so you know, I was just getting. College, uh, college kids that were looking for some extra money and, and they didn't really take the job too seriously. It was just a job for them. It wasn't necessarily a, a long-term thing. And so now I have guys that, um, you know, really believe in what we're doing. Um, and our, our understanding of the fact that, you know, with, with a job like this, it takes a lot more outside of what you're actually getting paid for.
0: Yeah, it sure. Feels like it. <laughs> we don't get paid. so actually so sean you talked about some of the you know you feel that at a younger age you know you you didn't necessarily get the coaching that that would have benefited you later on so how have you taken that experience and and really had that input into your philosophy now for obviously the sessions that you coach, but I'm sure the guys, the coaches working under you, how they deliver sessions.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously that's something that is going to continue to develop, but, um, basically our, our main training methodology is, you know, within our group sessions or, you know, I call them, they're called group training, but it's really individualized training in small groups and um in those sessions you know we we're we're in, in in each exercise within each session within the curriculum as a whole you know we're focusing on three main aspects and that's the technical the tactical and the physical so each exercise incorporates one of those or all three of those elements and so you know technical obviously we're talking about what they're doing on the ball you know getting getting quality touches using every surface of their foot whether it's, you know, with dribbling, passing, shooting, their first touch, you know, whatever it is, we're, we're focusing on within that phase of the curriculum. Um, and then as, as well as that, you know, we're also, there's also a physical aspect. So, you know, before they perform, uh, some sort of technique, they're going to be doing something physically that activates their body and prepares them for the movement that they're about to make. So, you know, for example, if, if we're working on dribbling, then, it's going to be some sort of footwork, you know, uh, balance and coordination, uh, agility type stuff, because those movements directly translate to, you know, the touches that they're going to be taking on the ball. And then, you know, on top of all of that, the most important aspect is, you know, I say tactical, but it's more just, just mental, you know, their decision-making, uh, problem solving. So, so we'll always incorporate, you know, some sort of uh, information processing within an exercise, whether it's, you know, reacting to colors, solving problems, um, you know, things like that to make them, you know, uh, think, to make them think, to, to expand their mental capacity, which, you know, then makes it easier for them to uh, process things in games and, and, and make better decisions based on the situations that they see, you know, more effectively and also quicker, too. Um, so, so, you know, our group sessions, depending on numbers, of course, we'll always start with, uh, some sort of arrival activity, and then we'll move into a technical warm-up that kind of outlines the session for the day. And then, then it's a phase of the game where they're performing that technique under light pressure. Um, and then, you know, then it's a restricted game. So now it's more realistic pressure. And then at the end is going to be uh, another, uh, a play phase. And so we may, we may put some restrictions on them uh, just to force them to you know, work on the things that we're trying to get them to work on. But most of the time, that last play phase is, is free play. We just want them to, 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 to try and apply those things on their own. That's
2: kind of the approach we take over here. We say, Dave, it's fair to say.
0: I, I was just thinking, so I don't know, Sean, I know you're quite keen again to, you seem like an enthusiastic sponge trying to get other all the different ideas and, and influences in. So, I mean, I, I don't know, have you heard of the, the English FA's four-corner model at all? I haven't. Uh, Explain it to me. Okay, so <laughs> it, it's very, very similar to what you've described there. So if you imagine four boxes... In your top left-hand corner, you'll have the technical and tactical. So, so they'll tend to treat the, the tactical in there with the, the technical. So, you know, that's all the things like the ball mastery, the, the, the teamwork positions on the pitch. All of that would just be in one of those four boxes. Below that, in the bottom left-hand corner, you'd have the physical. So that's just, you know, you know, a younger age, you're looking at fundamental body movements, but, you know, conditioning, um, coordination, all of that in the other two boxes. So top right, you'll have the psychological, and that was what you were talking about that decision-making and what, what I've heard a lot is, you know, certainly when you go up the levels and you get towards that elite level, it's less about the technical ability and more about the decision making and that really separates those top players and then uh, bottom right hand corner you have the social um and this is something certainly before we you know we started doing the qualifications Ben and I were, were probably not that focused on the social but this is something the FA are quite keen on now so just looking at you know communication teamwork you know how uh, little players, little people, are, are interacting with their teammates, both as players but also as people as well. And I think it's a really nice framework, and probably you know it's it's something that a lot of other countries are doing in very slightly different ways, but I just like the simplicity of this. And so, you know, even Gareth Southgate, you can find videos of him talking about this four-corner model. So all the way through all of the different leagues, so whether you're a coach, an under-7s, under-6s team, or you're Gareth Southgate looking after the England national team, you know, we've all got that. Uh, four corner model ingrained on us
1: i like it i like it yeah i mean the social aspect is definitely important uh you know not only in their development as a player but as a person and essentially like that's that's what you're you're working for you know not everyone's going to go pro um so you want to develop leaders in any field you want you want them to be successful in whatever it is they do and you know if they can't get along with their teammates, then that's going to be a huge problem whenever they enter the workforce you know so so yeah that's that's super important
0: yeah, and I guess the other thing as well that that they're trying to uh impart on us is again it's very very easy you know when when you, when young coaches. Are coming into the game to focus on just the technical and tactical. And some of the kids coming through, they'll be, you know, by default, they'll have an innate set of skills which will give them an advantage, you know, in that corner, if you like. But then, you know, they may be underdeveloped on the social and psychological side. So, you know, again, when we're putting together our coaching plans, we do try, I don't know if we always succeed, but we do try to just tick the boxes for those different corners and not just focus on, you know, dribbling around cones, or, you know, some unopposed practice to help us with our technical um, and tactical work. Yeah. Ben, have you got anything to add to that?
2: No, not really. I mean, it's like you said, I think we're, though you may, it may be more subconscious, but all of those things inform when we put our practices together, but especially me, because I have different issues in the team. I've got people who have got more ability than others. I've got some who find it a bit more difficult to interact with the team than others. So there is a whole broad range of things that you have to deal with as a coach. And I'm sure you see this as well. Um, so that four corner thing really does inform and drive how you approach your training sessions and how you deal with the players. So it's, um, it's a real eye opener and it's a really useful uh, mantra to kind of follow, really.
0: I think the other thing I'd mention as well is that, again, just in terms of trying to simplify how we approach coaching, we'll look at, you know, three phases of the game essentially. We'll look at work that's in possession, out of possession, and in transition as well. And depending on your coaching philosophy, Ben and I have joked about this, so you know I'm, I'm possibly a little bit more Jose Mourinho. You know, a bit bit more of an out of possession coach, like to hit teams on the break. <laughs> ben is possibly more of an in possession coach, so works a bit more. You know, players having the having lots of the ball across your different teams. Do you have a consistent philosophy you know about a particular way of playing, or is it kind of down to the individual coaches and and I guess the innate ability of that team at that time?
1: Yeah, obviously you know there's there's going to be teams at different levels uh, that are able to um, play better or play the way we want to more effectively than others. But yes, absolutely. There is a, a clear identity to the way that we want every one of our teams to play. And that's the biggest thing that separates us from from other clubs is, you know, there is no central playing philosophy for other clubs. It's, it, it literally is just whatever the coach wants to do. Uh, they're all just wearing the same logo. That's a, that's that's the only thing that kind of brings those teams together um but yes absolutely we 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 really hammer home you know the the possession based game uh a huge influence of mine is, is Pep Guardiola obviously you know he's he's done so well with you know all of his teams that he's been with but i also take bits and pieces from every other manager that i see and um so so our our playing philosophy is is, is centered around possession of the ball but it, it also depends on the situations that the kids are facing. And so, you know, a lot of our, our training is based on decision-making. So we put them in, in situations and we, uh, we, you know, show them different scenarios and, and, and give them options and solutions as to how they can get out of those scenarios. And obviously, you know, that also, um, we're also talking about like the situations of the actual games that they're playing. Whether we're up a goal, whether we're down a goal, things like that. You know, the situations change. It's a free flowing game, so you can't expect them to just stick to one rigid philosophy all the time. Um, but like I said, it, it is possession based. Um, we're looking for them to to assess situations and play to those situations. We want situational players that can see the game and and decide their next action based on what they're seeing. Um, so you know uh, if if you know we are getting pressed high, we can't build out of the back as much. We have to find a pass to the next line or play a little bit more direct. So so that's just an example. But you know you want them to. To, like I said, understand the situation that they're in and and make the right decisions in those situations, whatever those, those decisions may be. But, um, you know, right now, for example, I, I coach all of our teams, um, not full time. So I'll run the sessions for our teams because we kind of have them grouped together. And the only reason I'm able to do that is because we don't have that many teams yet. So I'm able to combine sessions. I have for example, I have two under ten teams right now. I coach one team. One of my other coaches coaches the other team, but we run the sessions together. And so I'll lead the session, and in certain moments, I'll I'll send his team off with him, and he'll you know run the same exercises but run them himself. And um, so you know, in in the curriculum that we're working on with with our player with our teams is the first phase was attacking in our own half, building out of the back. The second phase that we're in now is attacking in the opponent's half. So the, the three main things that we're looking for from them, the three key actions are creating advantages, changing the point of attack, and then going forward with a pass or a dribble. So we're actually in the, the fourth week of that phase, which is the last week of it, and then we'll move into uh, defending in the opponent's half. So right when we lose the ball, uh, that first reaction to go and press and win it back. And and um, so, you know, right now, the, this last week of that phase, we are focusing more like so we started with creating the advantages, combining quickly to make defenders commit. Um, and then we move more into focusing on changing the point of attack. So making sure that we had good positioning and spacing so that, you know, um, when, when we change it, you're, you're already in space and you're not under pressure right away from, from trying to get sucked into the ball too much. So teaching them that we really only need two or three supporting options on the ball, but then everyone else has got to balance and provide a space for us. And so now this last part of it is that last action going forward. And so... Uh, We've set up some exercises to where, you know, we have channels on the outsides. They're playing, you know, 5v5 or 6v6 in the middle. Then we have a 2v1 set up on the outsides. So we have two neutral players on the outsides and then one defender. And so the neutrals can play with either team, but when they receive it, they have to beat their man. And they can beat them with a, a dribble or a pass. So as soon as they receive it, the other neutral player has got to go support. And then um, force the defender to make a decision to cut the pass or to cut the dribble. And whatever they decide determines their action. So they have to beat their first man. And then at that point, they can look to cross or, you know, go to goal themselves. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's where we're at right now. And then once we get through this week, next week we'll we'll introduce um, defending in the opponent's half. So you know, those first three actions that we want them to, to remember whenever we lose possession. So matching up to your man, cutting off passing lanes, and going to close down the ball. Um, and then after that, we'll work on if they break their our press, then dropping deep. Um, getting back organized and, and defending in our own half to prevent, you know, the other team from creating chances.
0: Brilliant. That sounds cool. Really, really good. I, I think uh, you mentioned about the scenario games. And I, I, when someone first mentioned that to me, I thought, oh, that's brilliant. You know, and they said, just, just, you know, set teams up and, and just start the game. Say, you know, one team's uh, down 3-0 or 2-0 with 10 minutes to go. Off you go. Um, and the first time I tried that, you know, and again, I, I was coaching the girls. So I, I probably spent the next 10 minutes with the girls, just arguing with me how unfair it was. <laughs> 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 so they got used to it after a while, but no, no one told me that, you know, to, to expect that. But no, I, I agree. I think that the scenario stuff is brilliant.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. You want, you want to create self-sufficient players, you know, our, our, ultimate objective is to get them to the point where they don't necessarily need us for, for constant reinforcement and instruction. Like they know what they should be doing. They're doing it and we're just there to provide support and, and, and kind of help them think about what maybe they could have done better in certain situations. Um, but, um, yeah, right now in, in games, obviously in, tra- in training, I'm, I'm on them a lot more but in games I'm a little bit more laid back and I let them kind of find their own solutions. Uh, but I do get loud and I do get energetic whenever it's something uh, tactically like, you know, they're positioning off the ball, then transitioning uh, from attack to defense, going to support, creating angles, you know, things like that. The, those things I will always help with. I want to set them up to, 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 you know, have success once they do receive the ball but. Once the ball is at their feet, then then that's on them. They gotta they gotta live through it. Uh, they gotta fail on their own and succeed on their own, and that's how they learn. Going
0: through that at the moment, myself. <laughs> yeah. So I was just going to ask. Actually, um, you just got me thinking there. So so it's. I, been talking to a friend of mine across in Spain, and and his son plays for a, a feeder club for Barcelona. It's around that same age group, so around under tens, under elevens. And one of the things I learned was, so in England we go from an under sevens game at a certain age to an under nines game, and eventually to an eleven side. Now, when it's under sevens, and you you've just gone through this, haven't you, Ben? When it's under sevens, we have little rules like uh, the opposition aside. team mean, has to. You mean seven aside? Seven aside, yeah. What did I say? Under sevens. Under sevens, I mean, yeah. Sorry, not the age group. The four months. <laughs> yes. The seven aside game. Um, the opposition yeah. has to retreat to the halfway line.
1: Oh, really? It's all the way back to the half, huh?
0: Yeah. So, and and I think and and this. Th- it was interesting you know again understanding what they do in spain because they don't have that rule and i thought well actually i guess it's it at some point someone at the fa has said look you know especially with england we do like to launch the ball forward you know we'd like a big guy up front and yeah. you know just get it forward quickly so to counter that at that youth level well we'll have this rule that everyone has to go back so it encourages Everyone to play out from the back. And so, you know, it's my belief that that's why we're getting more kind of ball playing players at that elite level now. You're getting the likes of John Stones who can actually play around with the ball at the back, you know. So, yeah, he's class. He, he's he's not bad he's not bad he's played for Man City so I, I can't love him too much but, but he is alright <laughs> but I was just wondering I mean when so when your youth team set up I mean it, say it's is it a 7 aside side game is it or yeah so we, we
1: so what they call it is a build-out line so it's the same thing when, mm-hmm. when when the goalkeeper gets the ball or it goes out for a goal kick we've got to retreat back behind the build-out line but it's not to midfield, it's, it's basically halfway between uh, the goal and midfield. Or okay. sorry, halfway between the edge of the goal box to midfield.
0: So and it's more like a,
1: a third. It, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Essentially, it's just a third. We, we can't play in the defense, uh, our attacking third when they yeah. have. The, yeah. But once it's put in play, then we can go and press. Um, and, you know, they un- just introduced that a couple of years ago. Actually, I think it was just maybe last year. Um, and I think it just was a fi- It officially went into full effect this year. Like it's, it's mandated to where every league has to play that way. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's funny you, you bring that up because I don't really agree with the build out line. Like it, 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 it makes it unrealistic, you know, for, for us specifically, because we are teaching our teams to build out of the back and, and that's the the beginning point of our attack. And so, you know, if we're not even getting put under pressure when we build out, then we don't really get any opportunities to succeed or fail in those situations. And so, you know, they're not learning. They're not developing. And, and then on the flip side of it, too, um, for teams that don't want to build out of the back, they're going to kick it long anyways. You know, we, we saw that. I haven't My under 10 boys have not played a single other team that actually wants to play. Um, it's just all direct. And, and so one team that I remember in particular, they would play it short to their center back. And then as soon as we would go out and step, he just launched it to their center forward. And so, you know, after a few times of seeing that, obviously I just said, Hey, you know, I told my center forward, go halfway, force him to play it. But everyone else just needs to drop in and, and, and tuck inside. And, um, and then we locked it up and they had no answers for it after that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't, I don't like, I see what they're trying to accomplish by putting that rule in place, but I don't think that's the right way to do it at all.
0: So I I think you're, you're experiencing a bit of that, aren't you, Ben? Because you're, so when you move up to under 11, under 11s boys, it goes to nine aside and there's no longer that retreat line. And I remember we were discussing a few weeks or months ago now, and the team was still trying to play out of the back, but everyone was marked. So, so suddenly there is that pressure. And so, you know, then they have to develop and and figure that out and problem solve.
2: Yep. Absolutely. And working on that at the moment and it's some games, it works. The game we played on Sunday, they let us play. They didn't press us at all. They, gave us that room to play from the back. And I sat almost, like you said, in that sort of first two-thirds of the pitch. which And it was almost like they were saying, well, you've got the ball. How are you going to use it? And we actually struggled with it. Um, so it was like a different problem because we worked all, you know, working on when every player's pressed and marked, what do we do then? And this is a different problem because we they were letting us have the ball and then the, it almost confused the players. And it was kind of like, okay, we've got the ball there wasn't enough movement so you couldn't really play it out and then we ended up playing it long because there was panic so yeah there's lots of different things that arise from it and now we've got a different set of issues to try and work through and find some solutions so it's all it's all good it's all challenging and um you know we'll learn as we go along but we'll get there but just when you think you've cracked one thing something else comes along which is the beauty of it you know it's Yeah. It's like you said, all that problem solving and making sure the players have got everything in their armory to try and come up with those decisions themselves. So you're just, like you said, that's really important what you said, Sean, about you should just be there encouraging and not necessarily feeding them, wow, do this, do that. You know, that's got to come from them ultimately. Right. Um, right. And that's the kind of challenge. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think the hardest part is is selling it to the parents, you know, because a lot of them don't understand why on earth you would want to play it short. Your goal is right there. Like, if you lose it, you get scored on. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so so that's the hardest part. But um, I think I've gotten a lot better at, obviously, explaining why we do it. Um, and then, obviously, you know, you also have to get them to understand that it's not that we want them to play short every single time. You know, there's there's options all over the field. And everyone should be an option. And so, you know, our forward has to be moving you know with the ball finding passing lanes to make themselves available so that if we get stuck we have an option going forward and so you know I think that that it's perfectly illustrated in the way Man City set up their goal kicks now like they always have Aguero standing past the last man in the other team's half and you got Ederson who can just put the ball anywhere and and you know if they're getting pressed then he just goes along and yeah. And, and that's it, you know, so it's not, it's not just like us being stubborn and making them only play one way, but you're, you're forcing them into situations where they have to make more decisions and that yeah. just helps them, in, uh, it just accelerates their development. Yeah, and we, we had a prime
2: example on Sunday, the game we played, one, one of my defenders, he did a back pass, the goalkeeper, and the grass was quite long. And it got caught up in the grass and it didn't roll properly. So their, their striker just nipped in, rounded the goalkeeper and scored. And I, I said to him after the half-time it was, I said, I don't mind us conceding a goal like that because you did. I actually thought the decision you made was correct. Yeah. Unfortunately, it, it backfired because the, there wasn't enough weight on the pass. But mm. I like I like us to play it back. I don't like us aiming long, pointless balls. I'd rather we went back to the goalkeeper and rebuilt and reshaped, and we were are not bad at doing that. And I said to him, you know, I'm I'm not happy, but I don't mind conceding a goal like that at all because you're yeah. trying to play it back, keep the ball. You weren't panicking and just smashing it long, so you know you'll know for next time. Just put a bit more weight on the pass, but right, you know, it's, yeah. it's, and it's all part of the learning. And he made that decision, and I thought it was the correct decision. It didn't come off, but it was the right thing to do for
1: sure. Yeah, and that's that's another thing too is. You know, I think they need to understand uh, the parents more so, but the players also need to understand like, we're going to give up cheap goals trying to do what we're doing in the beginning. Whenever, you know, someone is when, when we're still developing, like, because obviously it takes a lot of technical ability to be able to play that way. And if you have one player that just isn't really at that level, then it's going to break down and that's going to happen. But, yeah. you know, they need to understand like, we will give up cheap goals, but it's, it's, it's not about the result. It's about, you know, what are they learning in those moments and how are they, you know, uh, responding to that adversity?
0: Yep. Absolutely. Sean, I could continue to pick your brains, I think for the next six hours, but I do want to be respectfully your time. And so I think before we wrap up though, I do, I do just want to ask you, how's Wayne Rooney doing at the minute? So I don't follow the MLS too much, and it's not
1: because I'm, like, against American soccer or anything like that. I just – it's – it you know, I have a lot of other things going on. I prefer to focus my attention on following, you know, the top level. But he's been doing really well. He scored a banger the other day, um, just an, a ridiculous free kick from, like, 35, 40 out. And actually, I think he took them from – close to the bottom of the league to now I think they're in playoff position so they are in the playoff yeah, he's made a huge impact for sure I don't know if you saw that <laughs> did you
2: see that bit where he, he ch- there was a guy threw on goal and he chased back and he tackled him oh yeah he smashed that ball in the box and the guy headed it in I've, ne- I've never seen anything yeah. like it it was amazing
1: yeah, yeah. I, that was crazy I've never seen specifically Wayne Rooney do anything like no. that
2: <laughs> you didn't think he'd have the legs but yeah. yeah
1: it's like he's got his second win since he went over there <laughs>
0: Yeah, he does seem to – because I thought his legs had gone when he was was playing for United and then Everton. But, yeah, that goal was something else, wasn't it? Well, it was an assist, wasn't it, where he he went back and tackled and then just put an inch-perfect cross in. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's crazy. And then, obviously, Zlatan is, is just Zlatan. He's killing it over here and probably setting himself up for another move back to Europe.
0: Yeah, possibly. I, I guess at the moment, and, and you've got Beckham and you sort of setting up in, in Miami there, I guess it, it's more about the profile of the game and hopefully getting young kids excited about the game and, and wanting to, you know, go in the back garden, join clubs like Footy Factory and, and, and you know, get involved and, and get playing. So, so I think that's the main benefit, I think, of, of having a player like that over there
1: yeah just to draw more attention and to generate more interest for sure but uh you know long term if we ever want to really be be a top league, then we gotta have an open system and we gotta start being more flexible with selling our players too like you know for for example right now you know since the m l s is closed and they pretty much like they do own all the teams technically um all transfers run through them, so they can easily just Deny a transfer if they wanted to, but you know if if our game is going to progress, then you got to let our players go play at the highest level.
0: Yeah, and and I don't know, not so much in recent years, but but they must be doing something well over there for goalkeepers in particular, because we've seen quite a few American goalkeepers in the in the English Premier League. We've had you know the likes of Brad Friedel, Casey Keller, Tim Howard, you know. The, we've had a, a disproportionate amount of, uh, American keepers compared to, I can think, you know, Clint Dempsey was here for a, a few years, nearly moved to Liverpool. Um, but yeah, for, for whatever reason, you guys seem to have, have really good goalkeepers.
1: Well, I think the reason for that is just because, you know, we have so many athletes here and, and as a goalkeeper, you know, that's obviously the most important attribute to have your, your physical, the physical side of it. and, mm-hmm doesn't really require as much technique obviously you know i'm not saying that there's no technique involved in being a goalkeeper obviously there is but um i don't think quite as much as as a field player would need and so i think that's a main reason right there you know they're just more suited to just playing that position without the proper training
0: yeah yeah (laughs) Could well be. So, Sean, if someone wanted to go and find out a little bit more information about Footy Factory, where where would they go?
1: Yeah, go check out our website. Our website is uh, www.footyfactory.us. I actually just redesigned it this past week. So let me know what you think. And um, we're also on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You can find our uh, handles there on our website as well. And then if you want to get in touch with me, um, I, I love connecting with, you know, anyone in the industry and my information is on the website as well.
0: Awesome. And, and I would say, so I, I've been there as well as some cool little videos there for other coaches, you know, go and go and have a look at those and, and uh, see what it's all about. So Sean, thank you very much. Cheers. I hope we've enjoyed it. I, I hope you have as well. You're more than welcome to come on again. Uh, like I say, i quite happily pick your brains and uh obviously if you've got questions for us as well that'd be great to maybe do at some point in the future
1: yeah absolutely i would love to come on whenever you guys have some time for me let me know and i would be happy to make it happen
2: great awesome good really enjoyed it sean thanks for taking the time absolutely thank you
1: guys all right all the best
0: that was sean afcomenia the ceo and technical director of the footy factory in dallas texas Ben and I just want to thank Sean again for taking the time out to speak to us and being very candid about some of the challenges with soccer in the U.S. currently and what they're trying to do as an organization to make a difference for the better. You can find the web address and the Twitter page in the show notes. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us on the usual grassrootscoachcast at gmail.com or you can get us on Twitter at grootscoachcast. And if you do like the show, it'd be super if you could drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast catcher of choice. This really helps us grow the show and get out to more listeners. We hope you enjoyed this episode and found it as insightful as Ben and I did. And until the next time, take care.